All right, and uh, before he speaks, I just want to pray. Uh, so why don't you bow, bow with me? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you this morning for Gerald. I want to thank you that uh, you have gifted him uh, in your service. And God, we, uh, we are excited to see how you continue to work through him. And now as he comes to share this morning, uh, to challenge and to uh, bless us, God, I pray that um, your name would be lifted up. Uh, God, that we would uh, have ears to hear what you have to say through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Mike. Is it on yet? Is it good? All right. Um, <clears throat> it's so good to be here this morning. Uh, my wife Sandy is here sitting beside my mom and dad. Um, it's, it's a pleasure to always uh, come back here to Pleasant Valley. And I thought about all the things that I wanted to talk about at the beginning and reminisce. And I thought, well, none of you would actually care about that. Only I care about those things because they're all good memories to me. But, um, but, you know, even coming down these bumpy gravel roads is a good memory for me. So uh, we live, you know, in the big city of Steinbeck now. It's just all paved and everything's so nice. So how quickly we forget. Um, my sermon title is The Discipleship Journey. Um, and so that's what I want to talk a little bit about uh, this morning with you. Elijah was a prophet uh, in Israel after the kingdom divided between Judah and Israel. What we know about Elijah is that he served uh, Yahweh during the time when Jehoshaphat was a king in Judah and Ahab was, uh, was a king in Israel. But what we probably remember more than anything else about uh, Elijah are the stories of him being fed by the ravens when he was uh, fleeing from Ahab, when he performed the miracle of uh, oil with the widow at Zarephath, and perhaps most notably we remember uh, the miracle, or yeah, I guess we call it the miracle of uh, when he took on the, the prophets of Baal and uh, you know, called down fire from heaven and, of course, gave them the opportunity, first of all, to do that and you know, teased them in 1 Kings 18 about you know, maybe your God is sleeping, so call louder and so on. Right before Elijah gets taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire, and that's in 1 Kings 20, uh, he ensured that there would be another prophet once he was gone. And uh, so he gave Elisha a double portion of his spirit. In a life on the run and with more enemies than friends, Elijah took time to invest in those around him, to point them to God. Ironically, however, many see Elisha, the next prophet, as the greater prophet because Scripture records nearly twice as many miracles that Elisha did versus what Elijah did. Elisha is the man, we are led to believe, and uh, he's the, this greater success. He's got double portion of spirit. He's got twice as many miracles that he performed. But then we see on the Mount of Transfiguration in the New Testament that uh, it's Elijah that shows up with Jesus, affirming his place among God's great prophets. In the upside-down kingdom of God, Elijah is recognized as a worthy servant. Why is that? I'm here to suggest this morning that Elijah, unlike Elisha, Elijah had a successor. Not only did Elijah have a successor, but he was actually willing and, and was blessed to give a double portion of his spirit to Elisha. Once Elijah left and Elisha was on his own, one of the fir first stories we read about him, found in 2 Kings chapter 2, is this passage. Remember this story? 
As he was walking along the road, some youths came out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head, they said. It's in Scripture. The Bible talks about that. Well, what did he do? Instead of blessing the next generation like Elijah did, Elisha cursed the boys, which led to them being mauled by these two bears. Elijah blessed, and Elisha cursed. Elijah built into others, but Elisha sought only for his own well-being. There is power in speaking blessing into people's lives. So what is discipleship? Discipleship, and here's just one definition among many, is an intentional relationship in which we walk alongside other disciples in order to encourage, to equip them, to challenge one another to love and grow toward maturity in Christ. And this, of course, includes equipping the disciple to teach other disciples as well. So in Matthew chapter 28, we have the Great Commission. However, it is the events leading up to the Great Commission that are foundational to the commission itself. In other words, what did Jesus spend his time doing those three years leading up to the Great Commission? The Great Commission says, go and make disciples. Well, what does that look like? What did Jesus do? And my answer is that, according to what we read in Scripture, he invested in a small group of men and women, modeling for them what life, a life lived for God looks like, what caring and compassion look like, what speaking the truth looks like, and what time management looks like, and of course, many more things than that. And that is what he is calling us to do as well. When God tells us, go and make disciples, that's what he's calling us to do. I've referred to this a few times uh, over the years, but chapter 28 of Matthew, uh, by the way, is way fuller and way richer than just the last couple of verses of the Great Commission. In verse 6, the angels invite two of these women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, to, number one, come and see. Come and see the tomb. Come and see the empty tomb. Come and see the fulfillment of the prophecies, confirming that Jesus really was the Son of God, fully man and fully God. Come and see that he had confirmed his identity by conquering death, as only God can do. Come and see. Until we come and see, then what do we have to go and do and make disciples? We need to come and see. Then Jesus encounters the women, and he says to them in verse 10, Do not be afraid. The angels say, come and see, and then Jesus tells them, don't be afraid. He tells them this because he knows it'll take a truckload of courage to do the will of God in a world filled with animosity and hate and apathy, but also a world filled with longing and hope. And with those words ringing in their ears, Jesus tells them again, the very next words that he says to them, he says, do not be afraid in verse 10, and then he says, go and tell. Go and tell. Share it with those close to you and far away. Share it with people wherever you go, even if the world tries to drown you out with fake news and hatred and intolerance. And it is out of this reality that he then completes the call to each one of us to go and make disciples. Come and see. Don't be afraid. Go and tell. Go and make disciples. Let me ask you this question. 
What if all we ask of each other is that in our lifetimes, each one of us makes just one or two disciples, not save the whole world? Does that sound like something you and I can do? Just to invest in one or two people. God's not in a hurry, as we so often are. We've got this one life to live, and so we hustle and bustle and and try and jam everything into our lives to get everything done before our time is up. But God's not like that. He's got an eternity of time available to him and to us, and so he works from one century to the next, one generation to the next, one relationship to the next, doing his patient work of sanctification in our lives. And he's asking us to go and make disciples. He's not asking us to save the world. He's already done that. Nor find a cure for every illness. He's already done that too. But to spend time pouring into people, perhaps one or two, or if the Lord blesses you, maybe three or four or more, and just simply make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. Now, what does this great commission teach us about discipleship? Well, as we arrive in these final verses of Matthew, we learn a few things about Jesus. Number one, we learn that he is all authority. All authority has been given me, he says. Regardless, of course, of whether people acknowledge that or not in our world. And this authority given to him by his Father in heaven means that he will accomplish his purposes according to his plans. And his plans include using us, of course, his followers, to multiply his work around the world. And if we don't do our part, one of two things may happen. As a result of us missing our mission in life, or maybe more likely chickening out, someone perhaps won't receive the blessing that God had in mind for them. Or maybe... He will find someone else to experience the joy of pouring into other people's lives and blessing them and discipling them. Ultimately, God is in control and nothing surprises him or makes him shudder or feel like things are uh, in confusion or worry about being overwhelmed with the task at hand. God's in control. All authority has been given to Jesus and he promises to be with us always. So let me say this. Let's base our obedience to his command On his complete authority, not on our own human weakness and chickening out and stumbling and not having time for or whatever other excuses we have. Let's base our obedience to his command on his complete authority. Now why does Jesus stress this authority as a backdrop to his command to make disciples? I think he does so because the work of discipleship will only produce fruit in other people's lives if it's done in the name of Jesus. We have people talking about all the time in our world today about how we need to, you know, uh, work with other people and, and team dynamics and unity and so on. But unless we're doing things like this in the name of Christ, uh, it won't produce the fruit that Christ is looking for. The transformation that happens is the spiritual work of Jesus, our Creator. And only He can make this happen through the work of His Holy Spirit. What else do we learn? We learn how discipleship is to be carried out. When we look at the example of Jesus himself, discipleship happens over the course of months and years, not days and weeks. And it is carried out in small circle relationships that God puts in our lives 
not in big crowds or filled sanctuaries. I guess that most everyone here knows what I, what I mean when I say investment. For those who are younger, investment could be looked at as something where you pour time into learning how to play the piano or, or some other instrument or learning how to serve the ball and volleyball a little better, learning how to shoot three-pointers better. You invest time to accomplish what you're wanting to do. Us older folks might say investment is uh, spending the time and energy to make sure the business succeeds and grows or uh, putting away RSPs so that down the road there will be payback. The irony is that we've come to expect that long-term investment in life is necessary and so we participate in long-term investment. So why don't we apply that same discipline into making disciples here within the family of God, investing for several years with several people, which God will then multiply as they go on to disciple others. Obviously, the challenge for you and me is that in order to make this a priority, we need to make sacrifices in our lives. Our kids are uh, 19 and 18 and 16. They're not kids anymore. I guess they're already young adults. Uh, Life is busy. We're constantly following after them everywhere to one gymnasium to the next, and, and life is busy. Good. Not a bad thing. But in order, in order to do what God has called us to do, to go and make disciples, we need to look at our schedules, look at our time and our energy, and see where we need to make adjustments. But then when we think of the eternal value of working with people who are made in God's image, and the obedience to God's command to do this, then why wouldn't we Get involved in that. I'll share a quick story here. A personal story. Seeing this discipleship in person. When I was living at home. um, On the farm. Just about a mile from here. um, My mom and dad. Leo and Eva. For those of you that don't know. um, Our family saw the effects of discipleship. In my parents lives. Even in their middle age. At that time. When my parents were in their late 40s, early 50s, is that middle age? I think it's very young because that's where I'm at. They signed up for, if you remember, the 2-7 series. Anybody remember the 2-7 Bible study series? My parents signed up and participated in that, which was really a discipleship course. As a result of that, our family saw, us kids saw, that their lives and priorities changed and they began to more intentionally disciple others. They began to serve in the community of Sanford and made connections there as a part of some outreach Bible studies that were happening. They were informally, I don't know if it ever formally happened, commissioned by Pleasant Valley Church to go work in Low Farm, to go and participate in that church plant for 10, 12 years. They got involved in what I would describe as cross-cultural outreach as they traveled for many years down to Texas and served at RGBI and, and blessing the people there. And God continues to use them, even as dad just turned 83 earlier this week and mom turns 80 this fall. God continues to use them in the condo where they live and beyond that in the community. And I think it's because discipleship happened in their lives. They were invested in, even as middle-agers, And that just totally, in my opinion, changed the trajectory of their lives. It was beautiful for us kids to see that. 
Which brings me to the next thing we learned from the Great Commission. The marks of a fruitful disciple. A disciple is made when a person we are discipling goes on to disciple others. The key to discipleship is not just the person we're investing in, but that they continue to invest in someone else, that they multiply after that. We have to be thinking long-term when we're doing discipleship ministry. I am so thankful to come from a a long line of disciple-makers, is how I would say it. Uh, What I mean is, by my count, our teenage kids are the fifth generation of disciples in the Christian faith on my dad's side of the family. Uh, I've been able to track back to about 1617. Uh, I have no clue about where the walk with the Lord was with my ancestors that far back. But I certainly know that the last four or five generations, there's been this intentional passing on of the faith. And so Sandy and I are also raising our kids to raise our grandkids and our great-grandkids in the ways of the Lord. Now, I want to be very clear here that the point of discipleship doesn't, nor should it, be restricted to our family bloodlines. That's not at all what we read in Scripture. The entire overriding story of the Bible is that God has intended since day one that the gospel message and accompanying discipleship is to spread through the entire globe to all people of all cultures throughout all ages. The good news is not just for one people, but for all people. That said, I want to take time this morning to say thank you to Pleasant Valley Church for the discipling work that you've done through many years, through many decades. And that includes for my own life. My own spiritual journey is indebted to the many faithful men and women in this congregation uh, who discipled me through the years that I was growing up in this church family. And the beauty of this passing on of the faith was that it was not within a structured discipleship program, but in my opinion was simply the DNA, just the, the heartbeat of what this community here in Pleasant Valley was doing on an informal but intentional basis. So I am very thankful for this church, and I would say don't minimize the impact you are making on each subsequent generation that grows up in this community. You're making a huge difference. Again, we read in the Great Commission that Jesus calls his disciples to teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. When we disciple others, what we are doing is guiding them to the point where they disciple others within their circle of influence. And that's what we see as fruitful discipleship. Well, I don't know if you're convinced yet if this discipleship lifestyle is for you or not, but let me spend the last part of our time this morning showing you how Jesus engaged in discipleship in very practical ways. Luke chapter 6. I want to just spend a little bit of time in Luke chapter 6. To me, this is a key part of, uh, the, in a sense, the start of the discipleship journey that, that Jesus did. The first thing he did, verse six, chapter 6, verse 12, it says, One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples forth. The first thing he did before even choosing his disciples, who he would spend time investing in, is he spent time in prayer. Seeking God in prayer is the key first step in discipleship journey. As Jesus was about to choose who his disciples would be, notice that he, the Son of God, 
stepped away from the hustle and bustle and got quiet with the Father in heaven. Why, what do you suppose Jesus included in his prayer? Well, it doesn't tell us here specifically, but when we study the life of Christ, uh, here's a couple of things that I think showed up. I believe he prayed for spiritual protection from the enemy upon himself and his disciples. I believe he prayed for wisdom in discerning who should he pick to be his disciples. Wisdom and uh, strength to face the task of teaching and training and patience and joy in doing that. We, we know the story of how the disciples floundered, especially those first couple of years, and yet God was faithful and Jesus who kept pouring into them energy to do the will of the Father in healing and teaching and forgiving and transforming. I believe those are the things that he was praying to his Father in heaven to have strength and wisdom to know what to do. We do know that according to the Gospel of John, Jesus came to accomplish the will of the Father. And how else do we know the will of the Father unless we spend time listening to him? So let's invite the Holy Spirit to guide us each day and then also to be his hands and feet as we gauge, engage with those around us. The next thing Jesus does is he makes sure that the disciples understand the gospel. When we read in Matthew uh, chapter 4, it's the same account of Jesus calling the disciples. He says to them, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Their trust in Jesus for salvation was foundational to say yes to anything after that that God was going to ask, or that Jesus was going to ask of them. When we disciple others, the most important thing we can do is make sure they understand the gospel. Understand the gospel message. Most importantly, I would suggest, is that he then sensitizes them to what a life looks like as a disciple of Christ. In other words, Jesus modeled for them what it looks like to cross the tracks, so to say. To engage in the grassroots of society, healing the sick, caring for the bullied and broken, and showing his disciples what compassion looks like. As you spend time reading through the Gospels, you see that example again and again of Jesus going into the messy and dirty world around him and sensitizing, helping the disciples understand this is what following Christ looks like. And I dare, I dare say that it is not anything that the religious leaders of his day did at all. This sensitized the disciples to the reality of what Jesus had come to do and was calling, him, calling his disciples to do. We have to be careful that we don't paint the picture of following Jesus too lovey-dovey, too pain-free, too, too uh, glorious in the sense that we won't face trials and tribulations. I love that Jesus modeled for them what it looks like to engage with the world around them. And then after seeing Jesus get his hands dirty, meeting needs, we read in Luke chapter 9, just a few pages further along, that he mobilizes the disciples to go and do the same thing. Chapter 9, verse 1, when Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them a power and authority to drive out all demons, to cure diseases. He sent them out to preach the kingdom of God, to heal the sick. So he modeled for them what it looked like. And then he said, now I am going to send you off to go do that as well. The disciples weren't perfect, but they were willing to lay their lives on the line for their Savior. 
because they had become convinced in their own hearts who Jesus was. And we know that even though the twelve were his chosen apostles, let's remember that beyond them there were many other disciples, uh, people, men and women that were his followers and that he was sending out to do his work. Our pastor in Steinbach last Sunday in his message, um, he asked the question, does God call the equipped or does he equip the called? And the answer is yes. He calls and he equips and he equips and he calls for his glory. So what did he mobilize them to do? Well, it says to drive out demons, to cure diseases, to preach the kingdom of God, to heal the sick, to trust in God's provisions, to wisely choose where else to go. The disciples went out having been convinced that this is what Loving Jesus looks like, it means that we love the hurting world around us and we bless people in Jesus' name. That's what discipleship looks like. And then we look ahead again to the Great Commission and we are thankful to see that Jesus empowers us. And lo, I will be with you always. He empowers us and gives us authority to finish the task after he has left. Uh, One commentary I was reading in preparation put it this way. Jesus deputizes his disciples to ride straight into Satan's kingdom and rescue the lost from his grasp. That's what Jesus is calling us to do, and that's what he's empowered us to do. Jesus told his disciples to go and point to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, and to remind everyone that no one comes to the Father except through him. As sheep, we need to stay close to the shepherd Because the devil is actually not very afraid of us at all, but he certainly is of our shepherd. Our power and authority comes from our shepherd. Finally, Jesus also energizes them by giving them and us the gift of the Holy Spirit, as we read about in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Our service to our king is not done in our own strength, but in the power and wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit. Let me add one more final step in all of this discipleship process. And it is the importance of spending time close to Jesus. Luke chapter 9, he sends them out. It says in verse 5, If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off, go to the next town. And this is verse 6, So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. It's a beautiful story. Verse 10, Luke chapter 9, verse 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. I'm just picturing a bunch of, uh, uh, my wife works at Mitchell Elementary School, uh, working with kids there, and, and just like, you know, they, they come back after spring break, and blah, 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 they're just talking about everything they all did, and all the excitement, and they're just super bubbling over. And I somehow just pictured, I'm not sure if that's what was happening here, but They reported to Jesus all the things that they had done. I mean, why wouldn't they have been bubbling over with excitement with all the things that they got to do? And then it says, Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. Resting in Jesus. Jesus takes his disciples off to a secluded place to listen to them. Okay, yeah, uh uh-huh. Oh, no, tell me more. He listens to them, allows them to debrief all the things that they were going, that they'd experienced, and so on. And then he ministers to them, off away from 
everybody else, to refuel them in his presence, to quiet them from the busyness of their lives, to refresh them physically, emotionally, and spiritually, to teach and train some more. Okay, in this situation or in that, here's what you could have done, or this is what, what a pressure, I wish I could have been there, right? It's so beautiful. Unless each one of us spends time with Jesus, there is little hope to see God's kingdom grow. We want to. I'm sure that you want to do these kind of things too. I desperately want to. But we need to spend time fueling up regularly on the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. These are some of the key steps. There's many more. Discipleship is just a huge kind of ministry that we need to be involved in. But I think we can be encouraged by this. As you consider what this journey of discipleship could look like for you, either as the one being discipled, which means then you're going to be required or asked to go and disciple others, or the one that's going to be doing the discipling, it's a relationship, begin by prayerfully seeking God's direction towards these relationships. Who is God placing in your life? Who does God want you to invest in, to spend time with? But then also remember that the journey must be intentional and should include some of these key things that we learn about when we look at the life of Christ. We must decide where we want our life and ministry to count. In the momentary applause of popular recognition? Oh, good job. You, you, you did that and so we feed off of that. Or the reproduction of our lives in a few chosen men and women who will carry on the Lord's work after us. Like Elijah did in the life of Elijah. Thank you, God, so much for the way that you have empowered us, for the way that you have called us, and the way that you walk patiently with us in this journey of discipleship, in this journey of relationship in our church families. Would you bless and encourage this congregation for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.